Hello everyone, welcome to the episode 25 of Soul Eat Saturday. The guest we have today, Lori Silverman. She is a founder of Partners of for Progress. She helps firms strategize about their future, navigate messy complex changes, make smarter decisions using data and influence through story. Since 1991, she worked in 25 industries with enterprises like Chevron, American Family Insurance, McDonald's, Target, GE, Philips North America, and the U.S. Air Force. She is the author of five books, including the bestseller, Business Storytelling for Dummies, and has been a keynote speaker at more than 80 events. Lori is also an adjunct professor at Golden Gate University, teaching the only graduate course in the world on strategic thinking in an industrial and organizational psychology master's program. Wow, this is like a great profile to hear and lots of achievements. So thank you so much, Lori, uh, agreeing on the time and being a guest on my Solid Saturday podcast. Really, really appreciate your time. Oh, this is a delight. Thank you for the invitation to join you. Yep, thank you. All my pleasure. So to begin with, actually, uh, the first question, like when I see yourself, like you are like a true leader and leading all the, like not only a single passion or the interest, you are keeping up to everything. So, so it is moreover like the first question to start with is like, you know, what advice were you given early on in the life that has been served you well throughout your career? Actually, the best advice I received was from my father, who is a true entrepreneur. And at, at this time, he's 87 years old, going to be 88 this year, and he still works in his business. Mm -hmm. But he told us all as kids that what we should do is find our passion and mm -hmm. then do it better than anyone else. And that's, that is something that really, I think, is ingrained in me. I'm the only entrepreneur out of all my siblings. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to college... It was in my second graduate program mm -hmm. that I had a professor say to me, um, and actually said it to a whole group. He said, you know, it's not about being in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. It's about being in so many places at so many different times. You just happen to find yourself in the right place. And so I think for me, both of those pieces have come together. Oh, that's great to know, actually. And it's very wise as well. So yeah. um, as you, uh, like, you know, moving towards your passion side, actually, we already mentioned that in a couple of, like, introduction as well as uh, in your first uh, interview as well. So um, when did you realize your passion? Well, I thought, I thought, and I'm, and, and I'm going to come back to this in a little bit, um, is I thought my passion was to become, when I was 10 years old, to become a plastic surgeon. So I did everything going forward from that point on to make that, that dream a reality. I decided I was only going to stay in high school for three years, and I found a way to make that happen. It was very serendipitous. Mm -hmm. um, so I left home when I was 16 years old. But when I got to my third year of college and I was getting ready to make a statement about my major, which was going to be in molecular biology. Mm -hmm. The head of the program told me that it would be over his dead body if he ever gave a woman mm -hmm. the right to have a degree in molecular biology. And this was a long time ago, because I'll be 62 this year. Oh, wow. And that, and that stopped me in my tracks, because mm -hmm. I couldn't move further. 
I mean, and he would not change his mind. The dean of students' office could not get him to change his mind. And so now here I am saying, what do I do going forward? Because my path to becoming a doctor has all of a sudden been stalled out. And that was the first time that I really learned something, but I didn't have words for it at that time. So allow me to kind of explain it. I think that there are two continuums. Mm -hmm. One continuum has to do with what I call free will, what you choose. And I think that's what my father was talking about when he was talking a little bit about passion. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's a second continuum, and that continuum is called destiny. Mm -hmm. And I also think my father was talking about that, too, because I think for him, his mm -hmm. passion, which was a choice that he made, was also his destiny. But I think what I learned in that circumstance, mm -hmm. if I can put words to it now, mm -hmm. is that when we are not on the path to our destiny, mm -hmm. the universe takes out a two by four and it knocks us over the head and it says, you need to get on a different path. And we're like, no, I don't want to get on another path. This is the path I've chosen. That's the free will. But it's not the path we're meant to be on. And so it wasn't until last summer so when I was, you know, when I turned 61, actually, it wasn't until last summer that I had this huge epiphany mm -hmm. about what my real legacy is. And, and, and what it is, is I have, and I'm doing this for the third time in my career, I take topics that, for lack of a better phrase, Google Trends does not recognize. Mm -hmm. And I make them mainstream. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing this for the third time in my career. And I've learned that it takes 10 years, maybe longer, mm -hmm. to bring those to fruition. And so my legacy is not so much a topic area mm -hmm. as much as it is finding gaps, seeing opportunities, mm -hmm. and then saying, oh, this is what I need to do. But I think for me, this third area that I'm working on is my destiny because it brings everything that I learn. Mm -hmm even when I was 10 years old, all the things I've learned throughout my whole life and it's woven them together into a single whole. And so, you know, I'm not like that kid, right? That, that uh, violin um, virtuoso whose, you know, passion and legacy are one and the same thing. I'm one of those people where life has had to hit me upside the, the head a few times <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and redirect me until it finally all started to come together. Wow, actually, I started getting inspired by you uh, already. Like, you know, uh, the way you are speaking actually truly shows like, you know, kind of a leader you are. Uh, so um, one more interesting thing that you mentioned that, you know, you, I always ask the guests the questions like, you know, how did you realize your passion? But mm -hmm. the way you said that, you know, it is not about me finding the passion, passion found me. Right. I would like to ask that. How did that happen? And well, um, it's a very circuitous path, if I can take a few minutes to kind of um, explain it. Um, because the first part of my career when I was in my 20s, so I spent about eight years working in two hospitals. So even though I couldn't get my degree in molecular biology and I got a, an undergrad in psych and two graduate degrees, one in counseling and an MBA, I took those into healthcare. Mm -hmm. And... I um, had a situation happen in my second job when I was the acting director of a training department. 
mm-hmm. and, and had stellar performance reviews. I was doing well in the history of the organization. Everyone who'd been an acting director became a director, a formal director. One day my boss called me up and he said, I need to meet with you privately. He said, and um, we're not giving you the job formally. Mm-hmm. I, I was so shocked. I'm like, I don't understand. And he said, well, we're going to bring back an employee you hired a few years ago mm-hmm. as your boss, and you're going to train her. And I thought, no, I'm not. <laughs> I don't care what anyone says. I'm not doing that. And I called my father. And I was very upset. Mm-hmm. And I said, what do I do? And he said a really important piece, I think, not just for me, but right now and where we are in history and what's been going on with the COVID situation, he mm-hmm. said, who do you know? Who do you know? I said, I know nobody. He said, no, you know somebody. You know somebody. Who do you know? And I sat back and I said, you know, a couple of years ago, I was bored. And I said to my boss, I would like to research up and coming trends in leadership development. Can I go into the community? I lived in Madison, Wisconsin. And can I interview people in prestigious leadership roles? <laughs> and one man I interviewed, uh, Peter Schulte, said to me, you need to join the American Society for Quality. It was quality control at the time. <laughs> and you need to go hear a man by the name of W. Edwards Deming in the quality industry speak. I looked at Peter and I thought, and this is, I have very strong intuition Mm -hmm. and I've learned in my lifetime that you have to pay attention to intuition. So Mm -hmm. I thought this man was a former priest. He would never lie to me. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I can trust him. And I went back to my boss and I said, this is what Peter told me to do. And Mm -hmm. she said, we'll fund the association, but we're not going to fund this. And I want you to imagine what it was like. Cause again, how does this work today? I made $18,000 a year. I went across the hall from where I worked to the credit union and I took out a $2,000 loan Mm -hmm. and I sent myself to go see Dr. Deming and my hospital would not even let me do it on work time. I had to take a whole week of vacation time Mm -hmm. to do it. But my father said to me, is there anything about that experience that stood out? And I said, yes, there was a man who said to me when I registered, because I had to register under my own, I had a little side business doing training. Mm -hmm. He said, if you ever need anything, call me. My dad said, call him. Call him, don't tell him what happened. Just say, I'm ready. What's the opportunity? And that one event has led me to where I am today. I mean, it was because Mm -hmm. what I ended up doing for that company is I spent three years, I led teams of PhD statisticians, and I'm not a statistician. I'm someone who does the messy change piece of it. But Mm -hmm. together in teams, and this is what we're missing today in the data and digital transformation world, we're missing that people with my expertise need to partner with data scientists, statisticians, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to actually profoundly shift an organization and make change possible. So the things that people are trying to do today I was getting experienced in when I was 30 years old, which was very interesting, right? And so I did that for three years. And then one of my clients said to me, he said, you know, you don't march to the beat of the same drummer as everyone else. And your company is wanting to go down one path. I was employee number 11. We had grown to number 75. And he said, mm-hmm. we, we don't want you to go that path. We want you to come with us over here. And so will you consider at the end of your three-year contract? Mm-hmm. Uh, opening up your own company. And so I did, 
I opened up my own company. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, 30, 30 years old, 1991, a little bit older, 33 years old, I think I was. Mm -hmm. And uh, I gave back, this is an important piece to me. I gave back my income for three years, half mm -hmm. my income mm -hmm. to my former employer because they allowed me to keep that client and do really great work with them. Um, mm -hmm. That was very, to this day, I think is still really quite innovative. Mm. And then I started to get some of my own clients, but I learned how to do turnaround work. I mm. took, and, and I worked, I had a statistician working with me. And so we would walk into organizations just like today. We have a lot of organizations going through crisis, right? Mm -hmm. That are going to need some help. You know, how do I, that's not just like, how do I pivot short term, but how do I pivot long term? And we worked with those organizations to literally help them within a year to 18 months to shift themselves into either new businesses or finding new income streams or doing other things. And I did that till 1996 when I changed the name of my company because mm -hmm. I realized I was doing strategy work. Mm -hmm. So uh, we changed the name of the company from Partners for Quality to Partners for Progress mm -hmm. in 96. And then a few, I did another book in 99. That was when I realized that was kind of my first realization that I was doing something new and unique. We did a book that um, my former husband, when he, he wrote a fable for me, he calls it um, how the queue lost its tail from total quality management to total organizational management. Mm -hmm. And so I know how I know the business of the business. I know how to transform whole organizations. That book came out in 99. But a couple of years later, I was in another situation with two women helping them to write their book on um, stories for trainers. And one woman, when the contract came to actually write the book, she walked away from the project. Mm -hmm. The other author called me up and said, I don't know what to do. I can't write this book myself. I said, oh, I'm always in search of a new project, serendipity, new project. Allow me to write it with you. And that book started a 15-year journey into wow. the business storytelling arena. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, and this is like one of those talk about serendipity again, mm -hmm. um, which is part of that destiny sort of thing. The mm -hmm. last book I wrote in 2013 had a chapter in it called What to Do with Data in mm -hmm. in business storytelling for dummies. Mm -hmm. And about a year after it came out, I said to my colleague who I wrote the book with, I said, why did we put that chapter in the book? Like, I don't remember. We wrote really fast. We wrote a book like in four months, you know. And she said that she had been seeing folks in the data science community talking about the use of story with data. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that's interesting. So I pulled all the articles I could find, all the books I could find, mm -hmm. and sat down with them around me. Mm -hmm. And I realized that there were three gaps mm -hmm. that the data science community didn't understand what a story is. And unfortunately, I don't know if they do today. Because when they talk about a data story, they most times they're talking about a data visualization, which is not a story yep, yep. at all, right? Mm -hmm. You know that. Mm -hmm. The second thing is they don't know brain research. So they don't understand that the brain actually hates data. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it is. So everybody keeps saying, well, why is it that people are arguing with data? Well, that's what happens when you put data in front of them. You know, <laughs> you need to find the insight and give them a story, a real human story. And then the third gap I found was um, that set me on the path really today is that I realized that the um, OCM approach that data scientists used to study data was really was not uh, was flawed. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was missing a number of steps, and it still is. 
And so I created with my colleague a methodology that we call making smarter decisions with data. And smarter is actually an acronym. But when I think about all of those pieces that were happening, whenever I had like a detour in the road, whether it would be positive or negative, because there were lots of negatives around the way. And oh, by the way, my passion at that time throughout all of this was doing strategy work. So here I am doing the strategy work and these things are coming in from the side, right? (laughs) Like backing me up against the head. But that is also, I feel like kind of a strategy, isn't it? If you look into that, it is kind of an opportunity strategy. <laughs> like, yeah. find the opportunities in everything. So, yeah. Well, it, you know, to have. I'm sorry? That is a good strategy to have to finding an opportunity in everything. So, yes. Well, and I think for me, it's um, connecting the dots, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so, all of these different career choices, and even when it came to like being a professor, mm-hmm. that didn't, that only came about. Because I, I am a strategist and I was doing some work for a client. We were looking out at the year 2030. We were doing some scenarios. Mm-hmm. And I had this thought. It was like 2016. I thought to myself, I wonder what I should do when I'm 70 years old. I still want to work. My father's not retired. I don't plan to retire. Maybe my siblings will retire. I won't. What could I do that would be valued and that would pay me money? Like what career is most valued when you're old, older? And there are very few careers, right, that you can do. And I realized that it would be being a college professor, but I don't have a PhD, mm-hmm. right? I have two master's degrees. Mm-hmm. So I called up a colleague of mine who works for a university, and I said, I want to start teaching. I don't know where to go. What do you suggest? And she said, it's your lucky day. Mm -hmm. Because in another part of our university, in the industrial and organizational psychology department, we're going to start up an online master's program, and we hire people with master's degrees to teach. So if you'd like to teach online, and I thought, well, that kind of kills two birds with one stone, right? (laughs) (laughs) I get to learn how to do online teaching, and somebody's going to pay me to learn how to do that. Mm -hmm. And I I didn't really think I'd start early, you know, um, to Mm -hmm. teach. But um, I have taught uh, a class every term um, since then. Oh, wow. I think for all except one term, and we are on a trimester basis at Golden Gate University. So that's how that piece came in, because I decided to stand in the future. Mm-hmm. I didn't extrapolate from today and say, what could I do with what I have today? Mm-hmm. I said, if this is what the future is going to look like, right? how can I live in that world? and have an income in that world that now goes back to my passion and everything else. And, and quite frankly, for me, because I do very bleeding edge work, working in a university setting is, is absolutely critical, right, for credibility purposes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yes, yes. So the way I am reading you, actually, you are a person like, you know, who has lots of risk-taking abilities and who finds opportunity in everything, actually. So you're great actually (laughs) so a lot of people actually lack that ability like you know when it comes to handling the risks like as you mentioned that you had to start your business and you give up on the financial stability like you know for three years so definitely it is the hard work that pays you off so whatever you achieve today it is something that you put on actually like lots of efforts behind it or time behind it or hard work behind it so thank you so much for sharing it was quite inspirational for me as well um 
moving towards our next question is about the multiple roles you gave lots of insights actually mm-hmm. i have already but um like you know how did the multiple roles in your career evolve such as you know consultant speaker author founder of a firm and adjunct professor well i think for me that when i opened my company in 1991 mm-hmm. uh, when the first re- that was not during a really good economy and and so what you start to realize as you go on over time is that you have to diversify your business mm-hmm. in order to have income so early in my business that diversification was through product sales mhm so through the sales of training materials which a lot of people are doing today mm-hmm. but then in 1999 when i wrote my second book called critical shift i said to myself one day mm-hmm. and this is about um can you dream something new into existence people call manifestation so mm-hmm. one day i was sitting and my intuitive hat came on i get these so so even let me go back a second when i opened my business that wasn't a choice to open my business mm-hmm. i was sitting in a bus in kyoto japan looking out the window i was on a study mission it was a gift that my company had given me for being the top billing consultant for 3 years mm-hmm. And I had this overwhelming feeling and I looked at my coworker who was sitting to my right in the bus mm-hmm. another woman and she said oh my gosh you're going to leave the company I said how did you know she said the look on your face <laughs> I said you could just tell and I said I just had this epiphany I have to leave this client has said will you will you help us you know your company's going this way and we're going this way mm-hmm. but it had never dawned to me that I needed to leave now Mm. that that I had to do that at that point in time. And so throughout my career, the, the I I listen kind of to these voices in my head and in um and so I in 1999 one day I sat back and I said, how do people become a keynote speaker? Mm, mhm. I have no idea. Yes. And I said Well, I guess you start by saying the words I am. So I said, well, if I said I am a keynote speaker, <laughs> not going back to my father's advice, who would I call? Who would I call? And I called five of my friends mm-hmm. and I said, are any of you running conferences? And one woman said, I am. I'm running a users group conference. Why are you asking? And I said, I want to be a keynote speaker. I am one. And she said, well, I can't pay you. I can pay your flight. You're going to have to stay with me in my room if that's okay with you. Mm-hmm. But we'll put you on the main stage and I'll give you an endorsement. Mhm. And that's how I started to become a keynote speaker. I just decided to be one. Yeah, that's that's very important stage actually. Like you know, you have to take the first step and definitely the people will will find people actually. Once you figure out that, you know, approaching people the way you approached, definitely you will find the person who can again, you know, uh, help you out. So yeah that is a very great point you shared um moving towards our next question is about you know um you created the one and only strategic thinking course and i am also very much interested in learning you know how the strategies work within the organization or while you are growing as well it is very important to learn the other business aspect as well so um, would you like to share more about it like you know why is it important and what, what value can it bring Well, I think that people confuse the term strategic thinking mm-hmm. with strategic planning. 
Mm. And it's something that's very different. So if for people who are listening, if you were to take a piece of paper and in the center of it, put the word strategic thinking mm-hmm. and then draw arrows to other circles. One circle is going to say visioning. Mm-hmm. Another circle is going to say strategic decisions. Another circle is going to say strategic um, or uh, formulating strategy. Mm-hmm. Another circle is going to say strategic planning. Another one's going to say strategic implementation. Strategic thinking is a divergent thinking process. It's about putting ourselves in the future. And mm-hmm. when I'm saying a future, I mean, some people say, well, strategic thinking could be five days from now. Sure, it could be, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what I've ex- shared a little bit earlier, which is how do you stand at least five to 10 years out in the future? Mm-hmm. Get to know that world really, really well. Mm-hmm. You know, today we talk about, oh, unprecedented times. Look at all this uncertainty. And I'm like, there's always been uncertainty. Yeah. <laughs> right? There's always been uncertainty. There's always been chaos. There's always been complexity. We've just chosen not to recognize it. Someone who learns strategic thinking realizes that it's all around us all the time. Mm -hmm. And so how do we start having conversations about all the possibilities Mm -hmm. that can exist in that future? And what does that mean? And what are the opportunities? And what are the sorts of risks? And what are the sorts of challenges that we might have? Mm -hmm. You know, I was thinking today, I mean, it's, it's a really simple example. But a number of years ago, I was teaching um, a a course at UW-Milwaukee in their uh, project management certificate program. Mm -hmm. And a young gentleman said to me, the only reason I'm in the course is because my company made a wrong decision. And I said, what's the wrong decision? And he said, I work in procurement, and they decided for a very rare raw material to Mm -hmm. source only from one vendor. And now that there's been the tsunami in Indonesia, remember back to that time, right? It was devastating, right? He said, Mm -hmm. our one and only supplier went under. He Mm -hmm. said, so (laughs) I have no work. And I've been saying to them, we need a contingency plan. What if, what if, what if? You know, so that's one example of someone who's wanting to think strategically in the future, right? Mm -hmm. Say, yes, I know you want me to do this and you want me to lower costs. And by the way, we're experiencing now this now with COVID, right? Where are the supply chains and how many supply chains have been upset because Mm -hmm. people didn't have options, other options or contingency plans. But another example would be another student who said to me one time, he said, yeah, he said, "Um, they had me working on a new production line for my business Mm -hmm. and another team of people are working on building the building that the new production line is going to be in. And there was a three, like a three-year gap because they said, we don't have funding to build this building like in six months. You know, it's going to take us some while to buy the land. And then we've got to get the architectural plans. And then we've got to get, you know, all these other things, right? And finally, the building's done. He said, you know what? This manufacturing line that I drew up mm-hmm. that's working in this other building, we can't transfer to this building. Because it's too big for this building. Mm-hmm. And, and you sit there and you go, did someone not connect the dots, right? Ah, yeah, yeah. You know, and he, because he was going along, but nobody ever said to him, mm-hmm. what's the physical entity that you're creating? Because this other facility over here is larger. I said, so what's going on? He said, this building over here has been vacant for five years. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> and I'm like, that's just on a program and project level, right? Or work level, those two mm-hmm. examples. But, you know, even on an organizational level, the real operative word is, do you want to be able to anticipate the future, yes or no? To me, this pandemic, this pandemic's not a surprise to me. I had a client in the early 2000s that I did two rounds of strategy work with. We identified the pandemic. We identified it. I was working with the American College of Veterinary Pathologists. They knew it was coming. Mm -hmm. You know, but why did the rest of the world not know it was coming? Because companies didn't engage in what we call foresight Mm -hmm. work to anticipate the future. Mm. Right? And to say, you know, they, they, what they do is they like to use forecasting. We'll forecast from here going forward. In mm. fact, I was just listening to a webinar the other day that was a bit um, uncomfortable for me. It was the leaders of four analytics efforts. And their businesses have been totally disrupted, but they're still using historical data, mm. even though they know the assumptions have changed, to try to forecast forward. I said, how can you? How can, how can like, I, I might not be a smart person. But how can you? The future is not the past. Mm-hmm. It's not the past. There's a break. There's a break. Right here, there's a break. <laughs> right? Yes. How about you use, and I didn't ask this question because I, I didn't know how, I mean, I didn't want to mm-hmm. uh, upset the apple cart, so to speak, you know, when four people are doing a webinar that's pretty well orchestrated. But I wanted to say, why are you not using data on the future to backcast to today? And if you're going to look at this going forward, You've got to be creating multiple scenarios in the moment mm-hmm. because things are still volatile, right? Mm-hmm. But you have to do both. You've got to do both. And so strategic thinking is not about the now. It's not about the past. It's not about the next step. It's about the step after next. Mm-hmm. So it's really thinking several steps ahead, but it's not through forecasting. It's through standing. Mm. in some year in the future, getting to know that year and then looking back at today and saying, how big is the gap? Mm. Opportunity to do strategic thinking at the, at the front line. In fact, I believe every person can do it at the front line. You just have to figure out what piece you can control. Because mm. you can, within your own work group, you can start to raise questions. Mm-hmm. You know, if, someone, if someone says to you, well, this is the path we should go down, I would say, well, what were the two or three other paths that we chose not to go down? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, that's a def- that's a that's an example of doing daily strategic thinking. Oh. And 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 what I would thinking about be thinking about again goes back to what I shared earlier. You know, it's not just about your passion, but it's mm-hmm. what are you really meant to be doing? What is what is your legacy? What is your destiny in this life? And mm-hmm. is that related to work? For some people, it's related to their children, or it's related to their volunteerism, or it's related to something else. But if it's related to your work, then what are you really meant to be doing? And if you can't do it within this employer, then where can you do it? Mm. Because if you stay, that dream is going to die. Yes. You know, it's not going to be, I think that's what you're getting at. It's not going to be fostered. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is finding a setting and a boss. Because lots of times it doesn't depend on the organization. It depends on the leader you report to. Mm -hmm. Right? We know that through Gallup research that people either love or hate their bosses. You know, and that determines their love for the organization. So I was fortunate when I worked internally to always have, well, I can't say always, because I do have one boss who wasn't, she didn't stop me, but she didn't support me. Mm. So I had to find other leaders to support me. So if you don't have a leader like that, you have a couple choices. Mm. One is you can stay and do nothing and feel miserable. 
Another is you can go out into the organization and find yourself leaders who will be willing to mentor you and mm-hmm. accept you into their group and help you to navigate the politics mm-hmm. and grow within that and the organization. Mm-hmm. And you have to take that initiative. Most organizations aren't going to give it to you. Even if they have formal mentoring programs, those aren't the same as you finding your own person to help you. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing is you can lead. You always have more than two choices. Yeah. For me, I never chose to leave. I, I oftentimes got kicked out. So, you know, <laughs> because I was that person who was thinking strategically. Yeah, <laughs> that's good to know, actually. And uh, it's really very val- valuable insights, actually, that whatever you are sharing. It is like, you know, uh, it's very hard and uh, to find a person who is wise enough and learn from the experiences, actually, along the journey of the career, because that is the most valuable advice people can get from, actually. If they find a person who gone through a different journey of a life, of a career, and uh, gone through different things, actually. So you are like a perfect uh, guest for my podcast. Um, moving towards our next uh, thing is, again, one more of, one of your interests mm-hmm. is that, you know, uh, your work around the data literacy. So um, would you like to share more about it? Sure. So um, when, um, when my colleague and I developed this uh, methodology, making smarter decisions with data, which is really all about how do you move from data to true insight and action and how to story fit in. Uh, I realized as I started to look back at the, uh, when data literacy was coming out in October of 2018, mm-hmm. and I started to read about it because it really got kicked off with Click and mm-hmm. a project that they called the dataliteracyproject.org. And so Click and Experian in the UK, and um, Pluralsight, Data for the People, and Accenture formed a consortium. And they put up this website, and they said, here's what data literacy means, and they used a definition from MIT. But Mm -hmm. as that started to unfold, what I realized in 2019 was that they were only talking about the individual, whether or not a single person was data literate. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and they were doing this because these are tech companies. I mean, there's a vested interest. You have to remember, in tech companies selling more technology. Mm-hmm. So if I can get you to realize that you should learn data analytics, and oh, by the way, I'm saying over here, you better learn statistics. Yeah. Don't you dare just know data analytics. That's not sufficient. Mm-hmm. But right? But, but so you become data literate. So mm-hmm. what? So what? What's missing in what I call data literacy 2.0 is the enterprise core competence mm-hmm. and the culture to support that. No different than what we we're talking about with strategic thinking. So you could train, and I've done this. I've seen this happen. I saw this happen when I was in my 30s. Mm-hmm. You can train a lot of people on statistics, analytics, data visualization, and we still don't make better decisions. Mm-hmm. Why? Because processes get in the way, people get in the way, You know, there's politics, there's, I mean, there's a myriad of things that can stop us. And everyone keeps talking about, oh, we need to have data democratization. We need to give people the data. I'm like, we did that before. We called it open book management and it didn't work unless you change the culture. Mm -hmm. So I, I say to people, we need to be talking about decision democratization. If I'm going to give you the data, I have to allow you to make the decision. I can't pull that decision back from you. So what I've been trying, it's going to take me a long time to bring this forward because, you know, everybody's focused on the data. 
-hmm. And I'm focused on the decisioning and the enterprise core competence, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm saying without this, you can't do this well. And the research supports what I'm saying. We have research now the past couple of years through New Vantage partners that keep saying, we have a problem. People and process are missing. Mm -hmm. All we have is the technology. And I say to those people, well, people is culture and process is decision making. Mm-hmm. So, if you, you know, so, so what do you want to do now? You want to still focus on the data? Or do you want to start to say data has no value? It has no value unless it's used over here. <laughs> yeah, right? Yes, very important. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I right? Yeah, yes. But, but we have to set it up so that I don't just give you access to self-service analytics. Mm-hmm. I give you access to everything you need in your work group to collaboratively make decisions, mm-hmm. you know, that, that people trust you with. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we're light years away from that yet. That in my book, I could be wrong. Other people tell me I am, but I haven't yet, you know, found one organization that's doing this mm-hmm. really, really well. And this is what we did years ago. Cause when we were doing quality, we were embedding data into decision-making. We just called it a different name. Mm-hmm. And so we, I know what it's like to take to transform these organizations. Mm-hmm. But what people say to me is, well, Laurie, leaders don't want to engage in that level of change. Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you, they might. They might real soon when they're trying to bring these businesses back to, to life, right, and resuscitate them. We don't have a lot of money to waste anymore. and We've got to make certain that every decision we're making is the right decision. You know, outside of an innovation lab, we don't have a lot of wiggle room anymore for mm-hmm. experimentation when it comes to dollars. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> maybe you feel differently. I don't think so. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I I was uh, listening. Uh, I have the TV on in the background every day when I work, and I was listening to CNBC this morning, mm-hmm. and the CEO of Snap, um, whose stock price is actually doing quite well, said, "We're still in a very volatile situation. I can't even think about the future." And I thought, well, that's problematic for strategic thinking, but it's problematic for decision making. Because <laughs> you know? I'm sorry, the decisions you're making today mm-hmm. aren't just going to impact the organization today. They're going to impact it 10 years in the future. Mm-hmm. So you better start thinking about the future. Mm-hmm. And then when uh, we think about this decision making, right, a lot more when we talk about the business, it is a lot more about the monetization, right? How we can monetize this thing. So when we talk about data, uh, creating the reports or the dashboards where it leads towards the decision making, which in turn leads to the monetization or the business for the. So what is the, how one can learn it actually, how to build that thought process? Like, you know, uh, is it again like a trial and error or it is something that you always uh, stick around with the people, get the insights, get the opinions, get the inputs and then. Well, I think I'm biased, right? Uh, because I've, I've been working um, and creating methodologies. So my bias is that an organization needs a decision-making process that it teaches all of its people, a very robust process. Because without the process, you don't know where you are in it. Mm-hmm. And when I explain to people what the smarter process is, I just did this a few weeks ago to someone working um, in a, a financial retirement uh, business where they're handling thousands of retirement accounts. She was telling me about a decision, and I said, "How long did it take to go from the data to actioning, actually implementing?" She said, 
I don't know. I said, okay, so let's play a game. Let me go through each piece of the smarter process with you. You tell me how much time you spent in each piece. Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, there's probably going to be a point when you cycled back to the beginning because this happens all the time. If you do not spend enough time on the front end saying what's the decision mm-hmm. are, that we're trying to make and getting it to be specific and worded actionable in an actionable manner, because so many times we word it for new knowledge. What is causing X? Well, that doesn't do me no good to know what is causing it. It's how do I get rid of the top cause of this problem? Mm-hmm. That's right. That's a very different question. Yes, yes. So if you word it too generally or you word it in a knowledge way, you're going to go through this process and then you're going to come back around to the beginning and get more specific. Then you're going to go through steps again, come back around and be more specific. By the time we got done, she said, I'm embarrassed. I said, why? She said, it took us nine months. Nine months to monetize, internally monetize the, the, the results of that decision. Are you kidding? And, and she said, no, I'm, that's why I'm embarrassed. And I hear that all the time. People say when they actually sit down and start to map it out, it's six months, nine months, a year, longer. Because new knowledge doesn't do us any good. And that's where we stop. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, we stop mm-hmm. with, oh, I learned something new about this. Well, did anything change? No. <laughs> right? The team is done. The team is done. They told us. Now we're going to have another team over here study the exact same thing mm-hmm. and take it to execution. And like, we're, we're fooling ourselves. Yes. No, to your point, I think it's, I'm talking about the internal monetization of data, Mm, mm -hmm. you know, not the external. There are other people who talk about the external sale of data, but what I think this has to start to um, make us question, especially now, because, you know, again, past data is not as valuable going forward. Mm. The world has changed. And if you think it's gone back to normal, you are sadly mistaken. We're in a next normal. We're a next normal. And there's going to be a next and a next and a next. And that's McKinsey's term for this that I really like. Is why are we spending all this money creating data marketplaces mm-hmm. with all data in it? <laughs> yeah. Is it going to be valuable going forward? That assumed a closed system. Mm-hmm. You know? And yeah. right? You know, and, and if our business model changes, if we change our business models in the next couple of months, which people are doing, you know, it's kind of like, um, just as a very simple example, the um, gin distillery that now produces uh, hand sanitizer, right? Well, how much of their prior data is really valid? Over here, right? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, well, maybe scheduling data is, but really, seriously, you know? I mean, you're, start, you're starting from square zero. And so I think we really need to start thinking about where we're putting our money mm-hmm. in organizations. But again, I'm an outlier. My voice is a fairly unique voice in this industry. You know, I came as a strategist from the outside, and mm-hmm. just like, you know, kind of like Mary Poppins. One day I showed up and I said, oh, let me play with you. You know, <laughs> we're talking about data. I'm going to be talking over here about decisioning. And, you know, people look at you like you got, you know, another eye, like right here in the center of your forehead. And maybe I do. Um, But to your point, if we really want to gain value, we have to internally monetize this. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have to teach people how to do the decisioning Mm -hmm. in a manner that's, I I call it robust. You need to know the steps. Mm -hmm. You need to know where people fit. You need to know who to include. 
you need to be certain that you've got all your ducks in a row along the way as you go through it. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing, actually. Uh, this is going to be useful to everybody because a lot more people are talking a lot more about data. And when I see actually lots of industries, uh, either they are on the prior stage of a data where they're talking a lot more about data governance, data cleaning, data quality and all that stuff, or either the people who are doing the business that is a lot more on the academics part. Like, you know, uh, education is the business, actually. Educating the people on the data part is kind of a business right now. Uh, when we think about actual implementation, um, it's like we are not yet there, actually, to see all the industries are looking towards that. So thank you so much for sharing and uh, moving towards our next question uh, that it truly, truly inspiring for me actually uh, getting connected to you and I would like to stay connected forever actually. Uh, so uh, it truly shows your leadership like, you know, you are born leader. And um, so I would just to summarize, actually, I would like to ask is that what is your leadership style and any specific leader that always you admire or follow? Um, you know, uh I think that I would, and I've given a lot of thought to this, um, I think that you would probably describe my leadership style as more servant leadership. Um, I believe that our roles as leaders is for people to realize their best and highest selves in the workplace. Mm -hmm. I believe in full collaboration. Mm -hmm. I believe in being iterative and organic um, in what we do. Now, that's still a form of um, experimentation, but it's in the moment sorts of things, meaning that we don't just say there's one way of doing things, but we iterate to see what's going on. You know, people talk about that. Oh, that's agile. No, it's nimble. There's a difference between an agile methodology and just being nimble, right? And being and, and really iterating through what different people say and collecting lots of viewpoints. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I believe in empowering people at their core. So even, for, for example, with my graduate students online, at the start of each term, I ask them to do a one-on-one -on -one Zoom call with me. I tell them it's 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. There is not one call that's less than an hour. And one of the first questions that I have for them is, so what? Why are you going to graduate school? And how do you plan to use your degree? Not just what's in the course, but where are you going long term? And my students all say to me, why do you care? And I say, because I need to retool this course for those of you in it to help you on each of the paths that you're on. So at the end of this term, you don't just have knowledge here. Mm. You've actually actioned what we've talked about in class throughout the 15 weeks. And I, at the end of the term, I'm going to ask you, how are you different? You as a person, how is your work different? Or how is your family different? Or if you have a side business, how is that different? And every term, there's change. Mm -hmm. Every single term. But that's who asks you today? Does your boss sit down with you and say, what's your dream? Like, what's your long-term dream and how does this job fit into it? Nobody ever does that, but I do. I do. Yeah, that's, and, actually, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I do it even with contractors that I hire to help my business. Mm -hmm. You know, where are you going long-term and how does working on my project serve you mm -hmm. down that path? Because if it doesn't serve you down that path, then maybe you're not the right person. Mm -hmm. you know, to work with me because I want to help develop you along the way. And lots of times people will say to me, no one's ever asked me that question mm -hmm. or I've never thought about it. Mm -hmm. Well, I kind of want you to, to think about it. 
you know, but that's, I think that for me, in terms of who did I think acted that way, I'm not certain I had a leader like that in mm -hmm. my lifetime. I, I, I uh, well, maybe one, um, a military, in a military unit that I worked with, the commanding officer mm -hmm. was, he was amazing, amazing, amazing man. Mm -hmm. um, he uh, was um, the commanding officer who brought the troops back uh, mm -hmm. from the first desert storm. He welcomed them back to the U.S. Mm -hmm. with Dolly Parton, he always used to say. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Colonel White was a man who cared about every employee every morning at 0600 hours. His employees were allowed to come in between 6 in the morning and 730 in the morning. He mm -hmm. wandered the building. And he greeted every person, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people every day. And if he didn't greet you, people would come and seek him out. And then we'd go, so we'd go sit in his office mm -hmm. after that, and we'd watch the parking lot because he wanted to see who was coming in late and who was, you know, who was friends with whom. And he was just a man who just, he just cared. He cared mm -hmm. intensely about his people. And he did everything that was right by them. But he was a he was a leader. He held you to what you told him he would do. He he made you highly accountable, and he stretched people like nobody's been stretched before. When he um, had his swearing out ceremony for his retirement, there were a number of unions in his particular part, civilian unions in his part of the um, organization, and they cried. Mm. Because they said, we will never find another commanding officer like you. And they were right. He's a rare human being. And so to me, he, he reinforced for me what I think is right and good in the world. Mm -hmm. Wow. <laughs> That's great. And thank you so much for sharing. Uh, this is definitely going to be useful for the, all the people, actually, who are struggling to lead their life or their career. Uh, this podcast is definitely going to give them a lot more insights and you know uh, hopefully they will find something out of it um moving towards our next question is about you know you already have your five books <laughs> so apart yes. from that any online courses or books would you like to recommend to the audience definitely i would encourage people to check all your five books actually and uh, uh, all, any other specific book that you would like to recommend or the course? Uh, I don't even know if you can get all the books because I don't even know if they're in print today going back to like early 1990 oh. time frame. I'm not certain. Um, but uh, I tend to read more magazines mm -hmm. than, uh, than I do books these days. I mean, I own a tremendous number of books. Mm -hmm. uh, the things that I would encourage people to stay on top of are the um, online portal for Harvard Business Review the mm -hmm. online portal for strategy and business for McKinsey, the articles that are coming out of those three places mm -hmm. are really stellar because it's, we didn't have access to online articles like we do today. I use LinkedIn and I encourage anyone who's listening. If you want to connect to me on LinkedIn, please do so. Mm -hmm. But I look at what other people are posting for articles and I'll tell you, people find things I would not have seen myself and they catapult my business because of the things that are being posted. Um, and, and I read, for me, this is going to sound strange, and, and uh, I read the Sunday New York Times, but I don't read it when it comes out. Mm -hmm. um, I read it a couple of weeks in arrears, mm -hmm. because it's kind of like, did the paper 
um, have any foresight around topics. Are there any topics that are actually that transcend? The New York Times, especially their Sunday magazine, has some unbelievable long-form stories and in the Sunday paper as well that are, are on top of a lot of topics. Now, obviously, being a newspaper, it has its own bias and its own philosophy. But the reason I suggested it is in any major city, I would be getting the Sunday edition of whatever paper you have. And if you live in a smaller town, say, what's the next largest city? You know, it could be some paper from LA. It could be a paper from San Francisco, from Houston, from New York, from London. I mean, when I'm in London, oh my gosh, I am actually, I'm glued to the news on TV. I mean, now I can get BBC on my, my YouTube um, uh, on my uh, Roku, um, but I watch from all over because I want to know different perspectives mm-hmm. on life, and I pick up a lot of information that way. So I'm more biased toward what can you get short term that would be beneficial to your career rather than the books themselves. Okay. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, people, I would encourage you actually to connect with her on LinkedIn because truly she is a leader and she is going to be a great mentor for all of you. Uh, Moving towards the last question to end this podcast is about specific tips or advice. Actually, your life uh, is feel, I feel like your career journey is like truly inspiring and uh, you should write a book on that. Actually, your learning experiences throughout your career journey, handling different roles and what you learned actually out of those. Uh, but any specific tip or advice you would like to give to the students who are pursuing their education or professionals who are you know, struggling to grow or change their career paths? Mm-hmm. In the data area, I would start learning about something that Lori and Pratt is bringing forward um, and what uh, she's invented called decision intelligence. Mm-hmm. There is a, it's a new academic discipline. Um, there may be colleges that are teaching it. I have not yet found one, and I will... Um, I hope to be talking with Lorian uh, soon about being a guest. And I have a LinkedIn Live show a couple times a month, and mm-hmm. I would like to interview her for it. But again, you know, there's such a thing as data science, but there's it's not just decision science, it's decision intelligence. And decision mm-hmm. intelligence, so we knew that this was starting to become important when Cassie Cosgrove of Google changed her job title. She went from being chief data scientist to chief decision scientist. And she picked up on Lorian's work. And so decision intelligence is the combination of data science, management science, and the social sciences. What I want to talk to Lorian about, and she's actually said in one of my shows when we talked about the human brain, is that we need to include the psychological sciences. Because there's a tremendous amount of research that's coming out of the brain and neuroscience that we have to add to this mix. But I think that's the future. And unfortunately, universities are not there. Mm. They're not there. And so even when I talk about our making smarter decisions with data model, that's part of decision intelligence because we're combining together all of the different pieces that you and I have talked about um, today that I think are absolutely critical. And then you know, what I was saying earlier is get a decision methodology into your organization. You know, you don't need permission. I think people wait and they say, no one's asking me to do this. And I'm like, this is the time to step up and step in, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's been my whole career. I don't wait to get asked to do something. Mm -hmm. I just just start doing it. What's somebody going to do to me if it it actually works? You're going to tell me I was wrong? And And if it doesn't work, then I can always change what I'm doing, but chances are it's going to get you farther. 
And so I think bringing a decision framework into your organization is absolutely critical. I don't care which one you use, but just bring one in so that people, when you're sitting down, to start to look at, you know, whether it be ad hoc data or whether you're looking at, like, if I'm being asked to retool a dashboard, I don't just say, well, what sort of data and KPIs do you want on it? I start with my decision process in mind, which is what decisions do you need to make with this dashboard over the next three months? Mm -hmm. You know, and then we refine those. And then from that, we back out. Well, then what are the measures? What are the KPIs? How do we need to display them to help you to make those decisions over time? Mm -hmm. And that's a little bit different perspective. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot more different perspective, actually. And uh, it's very thoughtful, actually. And for me, it is very, very, very uh, kind of a valuable podcast that I had in the series. So thank you so much for all your time and consideration, as well as uh, I just wanted to mention that, you know, you reformatted the structure of also like a little bit, which is like a value add to me. So thank you so much for doing that. And uh, hope audience, you will also enjoy it. Until we meet, happy leading. Let's sit together. Bye for now.